0: So in this chapter, we're going to talk about God's chief creation, and that is man. I believe it's important for us to have an understanding of humanity and what the Bible says about men, because it will help us face the challenges that we go through. It will help us to have an answer to the challenges that mankind faces. Why, are, why is there disease? Why do people die? Well, the Bible tells us about these things. And if we understand this doctrine of man, it will equip us. So in an effort to bring an understanding and equipping to the believer, we're going to focus on the origin, the nature, the original state, and the fall of man. Now, we'll pick up some other aspects of the fall of man when we talk about the doctrine of sin. So the origin, nature... Um, original state and fall of man. So beginning there with the origin of man, uh, well, this certainly is a hotly debated topic, both within the church and in the the world in general. But we're going to take the approach of what does the Bible say? Because I believe the one who created ought to be able to give a statement about that. And he does. And when we approach the word of God, we approach this in a historical grammatical discipline. Meaning, we want to know what did the text say and what did it mean. What was the author's intent when he inspired men to write down the revelation he was giving to them. Words mean something. And when you put them together in sentences and paragraphs, and books, and a book, you can get what we have as a Bible, a very clear statement about the creation of man, and that he was created in the image of God. Nobody, well, that's not true. I was going to say, nobody debates whether or not man exists, but that's not true. People do debate whether we're all just deluded, and this isn't even real, and we're just like the imagination. Yeah. Okay, so no reasonable person debates our existence, but how we came about certainly is debated. And so the three main views are, um, well, there's atheistic evolution, there's theistic evolution, and I realize there could be some other forms of each of these ideas. And of course, then there's the creation. So first of all, let's take a look at the two that um, are not correct, and that is the atheistic evolution. And so this uh, this approach looks at the world, looks at mankind, and says, well, you are the, the product of an evolutionary process. And to describe that, I'm going to borrow from Charles Ryrie, who is a creationist, um, on this teaching of evolution. He says, evolution is teaching that man evolved over long periods of time through action of mutations and natural selection from simpler brute forms, which in turn had evolved from other forms, which ultimately came from an original single-celled creature. So that's the ideas from this most basic uh, single cell creature, which how basic is that? Ask the people that are working on the genome project how simple that is. But anyways, this is, this is the terminology that's given. So um, And then eventually evolution took place over a long period of time with all kinds of mutations, um, with natural selection, and here we are. And so we are the product of chance and chaos. Um, This view, evolution, rejects the Bible as the inspired word of God. So to come and say, well, but the Bible says, does not mean much to them because they've already dismissed it, but I still would use it because the word of God is living and is powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, so they can dismiss it all they want, but we know the impact of the word of God upon a heart, even a hard heart. It's like a hammer that breaks into pieces the rocks. So we lovingly share what the Bible has to say. In my opinion, the atheistic evolution is a philosophical system, not primarily scientific. No matter what somebody say their intent and motive is, behind this idea that there is no God and it has all come about by chance, a doctrine of demons, I believe this philosophical system has been introduced to destroy a belief in God. And it has, I think, if if that's my hypothesis, just go put it to the test and see, has that happened? And it certainly has. I'm not going to get into uh, the flaws of the evolutionary theory, but I will say this and encourage you to go pick up some good books. Um, There are some... Great ministries that you can go and, you know, uh, get their resources. ICR Institute for Creation Research is one. Um, Answers in Genesis another. They have all kinds of great resources. But what comes to me is evolution has a problem in that it cannot account for the source of information. That's like one of the biggest problems, besides the fact that they start with the idea that there is no God. But even if you're going to have a, a single cell full of information, where did the information come from? And even if you want to go back further, where did the information come from? When you see information, no matter how simple the information may be, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that a single cell is simple, but if you are to, if you were to walk along the beach and you were to see some initials with a plus sign with more initials and a heart around it, do you respond to that very simple piece of information and say, man, what a strange tide came in here last night. The water came in and just kind of messed up the sand and then these You know that is not something so simple as that. If you go into, um, if you're out hiking and you go into a cave, and in this cave you find some uh, drawings that are so simple, they look like a Troy Warner's sketch drawing. That's my artistic abilities. And, you know, stick figures, not good ones either, okay? You see these things, and you see, you know, something looks like a horse and a man on a horse. And you see another animal with four legs. And you see that, you know, there's a spear going into it or something looks like an arrow. Do you think, wow, the water of this cave as it came down and just over time it drew some interesting pictures. You know that information has a source. So I think this is one of the, the, one of the huge problems. <laughs> there's a huge amount of information in the human genome. Um, the absence of uh, the fossil record to point to a missing link, the lack of time required for this theory to produce the life it says it brought about, or the contradiction that exists between the theory of evolution and the second law of thermodynamics. I have this kind of tongue-in-cheek view. Anybody that believes in evolution has never owned a home. Because if you own a home you know that evolution is not true. And I realize, okay, that's just kind of me being a little funny. But it's like, no, that doesn't happen. My house is not getting painted as we speak. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So that's atheistic uh, evolution, dismisses the, uh, the thought, the idea of God. Theistic evolution is, uh, still believes that evolution is um, where life came from, but believes that God began the evolutionary Process Again, we'll go to Charles Ryrie, and he provides this understanding of theistic evolution. And he says, theistic evolution holds that God directed, used, and controlled the process of naturalistic evolution to create the world and all that is in it. Usually this view includes that the days of Genesis 1, day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, were ages, and that the evolutionary process were involved in the creation of Adam and the earth and the pre-human forms are of great antiquity. So that's a a generalization. And so there are sub-views of this. But that's theistic evolution. And so I I look at this, and this is an attempt to straddle between the creation view and the evolutionary view. And while I don't deny that there are some who profess to be believers and are believers that hold to a theistic evolution... I do not believe that's what the Bible teaches at all and should be repudiated and not held. We believe in a literal creation account. And if you want to get more information on that, I encourage you to go listen to our um, study we did in the opening chapters of Genesis. The third view is the view that is the creation view. The traditional biblical view of the origin of man that God created him on the sixth day. And um, I believe that each day was a t- normal 24-hour period. That it seems like the, reader goes, or the writer goes out of his way to tell you this is a normal 24-hour period. And so um, I believe that you know, what we read in Genesis and how God formed man from the dust of the earth and then breathed life into him was exactly what took place. So where does man come from? God created him. God created him. And we now move into this next point in that we have been created in the image of God. So let's talk about the image of God. Um, Who is man? Who is he? So we we say, okay, God has created him. But now that we understand that he created him, who is man? And the first statement we find in this in Genesis 1.26 is that we are ones that have been created in the image of God. Now, when I use the word man in this context, when Scripture more importantly uses this, it is not saying to the exclusion of woman, um, but we're speaking of uh, mankind, humanity being made in the image of God. And this is unique among all of creation. No no other created being is made in the image of God. Man alone alone. Wayne Grudem writes and says, um, this idea of the image bearing that we have, it says it means that man is like God in the following ways. Intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over the earth, creativity, ability to make ethical choices, and immortality. Charles Ryrie also writes, the image of God in which man was created included the totality of his being being as living, intelligent, determining, and moral. When we begin to talk about the image of God, there is something that is mysterious about it, and I think that no definition will ever fully take away the mystery of it. Because while we think about God, He is infinite, and He is. Although we know much about Him, and He has revealed much about Him, He is still, in His totality, is incomprehensible to us. He is much larger. It's not that we can't know him, but he goes beyond even that what, which he has revealed. So when we, write, when we read that we've been made in his image, it is always going to be difficult to give a fully adequate explanation of what it means to be made in the image of God. Not to suggest for a second that we are little gods, but we certainly are made in the image of God. So I, I would tend to agree Um, Intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over the earth, creativity ability to make ethical choices, and immortality. So these are the things that we have as humanity that reflect the image of God. Now the beauty of God's image in man has been marred through sin, and yet We don't see it in all of its glory, in its original creation. Um, It is being recovered through the work of Jesus Christ. He is recovering that. And this work began on the cross and one day will be fully realized when we as believers return to the Lord and we receive our glorified bodies. And then there will be that full restoration of all that God intended and maybe... We say even more because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So this is um, uh, who we are. And let's talk about the image of God being realized. And I think this is so important because when we talk about the Imago Dei, the the image of God, this is not just simply a theological uh, wondering. And I think there's a practical importance of walking in the knowledge that we have been created in the image of God And I don't think it can be overstated how important it is. It will impact how I view, number one, myself. How do I view myself? Knowing that I've been created in the image of God, while still in need of salvation and not God, uh, you know, holding any kind of divinity, it still brings a sense of worth and meaning to my life to know that I've been created in the image of God. That he wanted to do something special, something significant in creating me, in creating you. Let me read to you this quote from Wayne Grudem. He says, it will probably amaze us to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of creation, he made us. This realization will give us a profound sense of dignity and significance as we reflect on the excellence of all the rests uh, of, of all the rest of God's creation. The starry universe, the abundant earth, the world of plants and animals, and the angelic kingdoms, which we studied about last week. They're remarkable, even magnificent. But we are more like our creator than any of these things. We are the culminations of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. I mean, just hearing that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and dignity in life. So it's going to have a profound impact on how I live my life when I know I've been created in my image. But it's also going to have a profound impact on how I view not just myself, but how I view what? Others. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact on how I view uh, male and female. And we read in Genesis that he created male and female in his image. So it isn't just a man, although we use the term mankind, the Bible uses the term mankind. He, the, the genders are equally created in the image of God. So the man is not more in the image of God than a woman. And this has been a failure of philosophy, of religion, of many people down through the ages. And we see it even to this day, even when it comes huh, to the whole idea where we, in so many places where abortion is practiced based upon gender. And, you, and, and so it's like, well, is it a boy? Okay, we'll keep it. As a girl, we'll, we'll, we'll abort that. We'll put her out on the doorstep. And we we know this goes on, and we see that not understanding that male and female are created in the image of God begins to degrade how we view the genders. I mean, I'm not going to get into all the confusion that goes on today. But, you know, there is no creator. And now we can't even figure out what a woman is or what a man is. Are we really that surprised? It will cause me to esteem those who look differently than me. So their skin color is different. The shape of their nose or their ears or the shape of their eyes or or the language they speak. I don't look at that and, and attach a greater value to one over the other because I know that they, like me, like us, like them, have all been created in the image of God. And so I don't look at that and hold them in less value or esteem than the person I look at in the mirror because they were created in the image of God. If we understand Imago Dei, that we've been creating the image of God, we deal with the race problem. We deal with inequality, I mean real inequality, and the harm that women have suffered down through the ages. But it also is going to impact how I esteem older people. And it's going to impact how I esteem younger people. It's even going to impact how I esteem what? The unborn all of this comes out of understanding they've been created in the image of God. It's going to impact how I esteem those who fall ill or are born with a handicap still in the image of God. they've been created, and so we love them and we serve them and we esteem them because they are, as us, been created in the image of God. So important, such when we have this realization, it changes things. Now, I want to talk about the transmission of man's being or soul. I don't think there's probably too many questions how a a new body is formed. We understand that reproductive process and the the formation that takes place in in the womb and then the child is born. But what about this imago Dei? What about the image of God part? We understand that he created him and gave him a body, but what about this part of him being or she being in the image of God? How does that get passed on? I don't want to make too much of this, other than to say it does. It does happen. Now, um, you know there are some that say that you know there, and this is clearly wrong. But they say you know there's um, these uh, souls that are out there, and maybe they're um, angels that haven't done the right thing, or maybe these are people that have been done something wrong, and they're waiting for a body, and then then they get you know kind of attached with a. a, uh, a forming child in a mother's womb. No, that, that, that's, that's not the case. It's something still magnificent and glorious that God is giving this image. Although it is marred, the image is marred today because of sin. It's still something he does. And so we know that this still happens. Is there? Some may have a question. well, does man still have the image of God today? Um, the answer is, is yes. Yes. Um, uh, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. So this is well after sin, after uh, the sin in the garden. Or Colossians 3, 10. And have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. So there is, we still retain the image of God, but how does this get passed on? Well, there's that one... Uh, view the first view that believes the immaterial part of man pre-existed and then is given Hinduism this is kind of their view of things Plato um, also had this kind of idea the second view is that God creates the immaterial part of man at the time of conception of all babies and this is um, this is a view that is held by the Roman Catholics and, and many Reformed Christians um which is not to say anything other than this is who typically rallies around that, that this second view, that God creates the immaterial part of man at the time of conception. The third view, that is just called the Traducian um, argument, believes that the immaterial makeup of man is transmitted through the natural generation process. In other words, God baked it into the reproductive system. Don't know how, but somehow he hardwired it so that as a child is uh, being conceived, that that image of God is also being passed on to them um, in the same beautiful fashion. So um, these are these two views are really the only Christian views to to consider. And so people have different views about this. Um, I listen either way, God's doing it and it's the image of God. Now maybe this is a big um, you know, hill for you to uh, die on. Uh, it's not for me other than to make certain that we understand that God does it. But I, you know, I guess if you push me into a corner and say, you must decide, I'd say, all right, the traditional view, that God baked it into the whole process. But boy, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to the mat with that at all. But God, with every child that is being formed, he passes on his image to him or her. It's marred, and it's a work of redemption, but it is still the image of God. And so we read about this you know, throughout the um, Scripture, being created in the image of God, and that in the womb we are knit together. And so this is, this is an important understanding for us to have well, let's, let's move on and let's talk a little bit about the nature of man. We've talked about it here and introduced it. There's the material part of man. Um, he has his body, but then there is the immaterial part of man. Um, and even though the debate may surround how God has constituted man, which we'll get to in just a moment, um, it is evident that we exist of more than simply blood and bones and organs. Um, thoughts, desires, emotions are every bit as real as a physical body. If you don't believe me, the next time your wife has some emotion she wants to express, just tell her it's not as real. It's not very real. Just see what happens. My office hours are uh, Monday through <laughs> Thursday. So yeah, well, they They're real. Right? They are they are real and we, we know this. So the material part of man, that which God created um, on the sixth day, um, it beautifully expresses the immaterial part of humanity. So this body becomes the tool by which the immaterial part of me can be expressed. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we received life that we might be able to um, express this non-material part of us. So let's talk about the non-material part of man. The Bible informs a reader Um, of different aspects. It refers to the soul, it refers to the spirit, it refers to the heart. These are all words that we find in the Bible. It refers to the conscience, it refers to the mind, it refers to the will. None of these things are material. They're all immaterial. So the nature of man is that he is both material and immaterial. And in creation, the Lord brings them all together. Let me give you you reference to a few of these verses, but let me just kind of um, walk through them with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 15.19 For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and so on. 1 Timothy 4.2 Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron Ephesians 4 17 and 18 uh, this I say therefore testify in testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk and the futility of their mind and you can move to the end of that verse it says because of the blindness of their heart so this is all references again to the immaterial part one more Ephesians 2 2 and 3 um, and we'll just pick up at verse three. It says, "Among whom we also, also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind." So we, we see that the Bible makes references to these aspects, and the challenge is, how do you define each one of those things? And the the difficulty. And I guess where we're coming to is to talk about man's composition. So man is made of a body, and he has those immaterial aspects. But of the immaterial aspects of him, what is the composition, which usually goes down to an argument that falls between the lines of dichotomous or trichotomous? We'll talk about what that is in just a moment. Um, Again, yeah, push me in the corner, and I'll make a choice, but I don't know that there's a ton of value in it. Um, I think what is important to know is that we have an ability to relate to God. And we have, in this immaterial part of us, we have been separated from God um, through sin. And those things need to be repaired through a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Those Those are the pieces we can't move. So let's talk about um, dichotomous. is body and soul. Trichotomous says it's body, soul, and spirit. So for the, those who hold to a dichotomous view of man, um, he will, they will argue that the body and then this is soul, which makes up all of those other parts we just talked about and read about. Where for those who hold to a trichotomous view, it's body, soul, and spirit. So um, under the dichotomous view, uh, uh, theologian Berkhoff writes, It is customary, especially in the Christian circles, to conceive of man as consisting of two, and only two distinct parts, namely body and soul. And um, so they will argue that you know when God created man and gave him a body, he breathed life into him, and not many different aspects, but just life. And so they refer to it this way. They also argue that when those who hold to a trichotomous view begin to make their case, they fail to see that the terms soul and spirit are used interchangeably. And um, that is true, which does not mean this is a slam dunk. But when you read through um, different passages, um, you'll find that body... Uh, excuse me, soul and or spirit are mentioned together as the entire person. And um, I just encourage you to do a, a word study or, you know, do if you have a Bible program, look up soul and spirit, and um, you will find that there are times in which these are used interchangeably. Now, the trichotomous view argues that man is composed of body, soul, and spirit. And um, many of the early church fathers held to this view, um, and that can help you, I guess, or not help you. Um, but the verses that are appealed to for the trichotomous view would be First Thessalonians 5.23. I think we just read it. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless. So they'll say, look at this. So it's, it's distinguishing that we have a, 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 a spirit, a soul, and body. Well, the... Come back to that is no, we're just, you know, when you have spirit and soul, you just have a stacking of synonyms, not sim- synonym, but you know. Uh, so th- that's all that's going on. Don't, don't get confused here, they would say. Um, spirit, soul, mind, heart, it is, those are all synonyms for the same thing. Hebrews 4.12, though, another verse that we would, a uh, uh, trichotomous view would appeal to is, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, so it's like, oh, there's a difference. It can divide, and joints and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and the intents of heart. So, again, is this a technical reference to the two? If it is, then you hold to a trichotomous view. Is this a a um, a, a form of just using parallelism and using similar words, which is very common in scripture? Then you're probably going to land in the dichotomous camp. But it is conclusive from from Scripture that man is made up of both physical and spiritual. We're not just material. We are immaterial as well. And most importantly, we are spiritual and have the ability to fellowship with God. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So let's talk about the original state of man. Because I think this this is such an important piece for us to consider. Um, as we talk about men, because what we see today is not the way God intended it to be. If you look at the world today and you develop your understanding of who God is by viewing a fallen world and all the miserable aspects of this fallen world, you will come up with a poor view of who God is. But if you can understand who God was as a good, kind, benevolent creator showing such favor as to make man in his image, and that what has happened since that time um, is a fall, then you will be able to arrive at a good conclusion of who God is. Um, So let's talk about, first of all, the purpose. What is the purpose of man in the beginning? The purpose of man, simply put, was to glorify God. The chief aim of man was to worship God and bring others to do the same. This is what we do. We worship God, we bring him glory, and we are to bring others into that same holy act of worship. God, well, I'm going to quote again from Grudem. He says, God did not create us because he was lonely or because he needed fellowship with other persons. God did not need us for any reason. Nevertheless, God created us for his own glory. That God speaks of his sons and daughters from the ends of the earth as those whom I created for my glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Therefore, we are to do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one. So we've been created for the glory of God. And man will never understand his purpose if he does not align with the original state of man, and that is to glorify the Lord. An aspect of glorifying the Lord is, is, to, is that God created us in our purpose to have fellowship with him. And uh, you know, this is so clear, right? I think as we've gone through the book of Exodus, I mean, you can see it really clearly there, of the fellowship, the drawing near, the presence of God among his people. And God wants us to have fellowship with him and when we have fellowship with him, it allows us to experience the purpose for which we have been created. Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when man does not walk according to the purpose of bringing glory to, to the Lord or of, uh, to have fellowship with him, then we miss out on the fullness of joy, or the pleasure that he's intended and so man's purpose seems strange. Why am I here? Um, on this idea of us living to bring glory to the Lord, Revelation 4.11, and I read this from the New Living Translation, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. We exist that he might receive glory, honor, and power. He doesn't need it, but he deserves it. He deserves it. And our ability is to bring glory to the Lord. So if you live for anything other than than the chief aim to bring glory to God, you will miss your purpose. Does that sound like the world we live in? I think so. So that's our purpose. But the moral nature of man is something we should talk about in this original state. When God had finished breathing life into Adam... He gave him the ability to make thoughtful choices, specifically the ability to make moral choices. Moral choices. Man was righteous and he is equipped with a moral compass that could lead him and guide him into making the right decisions. An old theologian, A.H. Strong, says, Man's original righteousness was not immutable or indefectible. There was still the possibility of sinning, Though the first man was fundamentally good, he still had the power of choosing evil. There was a bent of the affections and will toward God, but man was not yet confirmed in holiness. One day we will when we're in the presence of the Lord for those who put faith and trust in him. We'll have that. We won't deal with temptation even. So man has the ability to make moral decisions, and this comes from the Lord. He was given a physical body, um, which we refer to, um, he gave, when he did this, he saw that it was very good when he gave him this body. Man was created with a very good body and a very good environment, so says the Lord. And so the quote here is from J.I. Packard, which probably many of you are familiar with. He says, there was nothing evil or corruptible about the body. Listen to this. Please listen to this. There was nothing evil or corruptible about the body as God first made it. We're talking about the original state. And had sin not come in, the physical ailing, aging, and rotting that leads to death as we know it would have been no part of human life. Now... However, human beings are corrupt through their psychophysical being and, they are, and their disordered desires, both physical and mental. And so this is why we can look at the role today. If we understand man's original state and, man, and God's purpose for him and that he had a good body, now we can look and we can begin to make sense of the sickness and death and disease which God said would enter if man sinned. So because of the moral choice that he allowed man to have, this entered in. It was not God's plan for man to deal with death. Why is it so hard for us to deal with somebody dying? Because we weren't wired to deal with anybody dying. That was not the plan. That's why it is such an unsettling experience to go through. The condition of man today is not part of God's original plan for man. And when you understand that, you can make sense of the world that's around and you can give explanation to those who wonder why God would create a place like this. And your answer is, oh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. As a matter of fact, he's working hard to undo this. He also gave man dominion. I'm not going to say much about this. Uh, Genesis 1:28 is a verse for you. Uh, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that God, um, living thing that moves on the earth. So he gave him this dominion. But let's move on. Oh, I think I'm going to get it done here. The fall of man. Again, we're going to talk more about it um, in our next study. But this helps us to understand what happened after God declared everything was very good. And so the relationship with God was severed. And you see this with Adam and Eve. And and God comes walking in the cool of the, the, the day into the garden. And he's looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? And he's hiding from him. And this is because of the sin that entered in, and it severed that relationship. And um, this, Paul, in writing to the Romans, talks about how man came under the guilt and the power of sin and is facing the wrath of God. So the fall of man had a profound impact upon man. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. It says, for since by Man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Who brings about death? Is it God? No, it's not God. It's man who brings death. First Timothy 2:14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Um, the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So you see that it is mankind in the earliest Adam and Eve were. This enters in. And then there's a lengthier passage which I'm going to recommend to you to read. It's Romans chapter 5. Actually, you know, we got time. I want to read it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Because this this really helps us to understand what took place in Genesis 3 and that historical event when man sinned. That's what happened in Genesis 3. So the fall tells us then, what took place? What, to, what to, uh, this passage tells us. What took place in the fall. So Romans five verse twelve. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For by one man's offense many died much more. The grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Verse 17. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, "'Resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, "'the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. "'For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, "'so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. "'Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, "'but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, "'so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign "'through righteousness to eternal life,' through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's a lot in there. I'm reading this so you can understand the impact that man's sin, the fall, and that historical event in Genesis chapter 3, why or how this is passed down to every generation. So as we consider this, I want to, in man's fall, I want to talk about three things in particular. I want to talk about the test, I want to talk about temptation, and I want to talk about the effects. So as we think about the test, at the completion of the creation of God, uh, of God of man, he put a test before mankind to determine if he would be obedient or disobedient. And that is the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. A test. It was not temptation. It was a test. And some object and wonder why God placed a tree in the garden at all. Well, the answer is God wanted to know. He wanted it to be a choice that we made, Um, not just something that we were hardwired to do, but He wanted it to be a response of love. Charles Riley on this point says In setting a test at all, God showed that He wanted men to voluntarily choose to obey Him and to serve Him. He did not want um, automatons, So he, he wanted us to be those that would look and see him and say, we want to obey and we love you. Which, of course, Jesus told us they're the one and the same. But mankind chose in this test to disobey. But there's also temptation that was going on. It was a test that God put there. But then there was also temptation that Satan brought into this scene. He comes, uh, takes the form of a serpent, and he tempts. Um, And we need to understand this, that there's a difference between testing and temptation. God tests and Satan tempts. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But of course we know that that serpent in the garden, more cunning than any, came in and tempted Eve. And it was in that encounter that he deceived her, and she came to think that God was holding out on something better than what he had given. And isn't that Always the case when we give into temptation. Has anything changed in 6,000 years of temptation? It's always the same. It's this idea that if I do this thing, it'll bring me more joy. It'll bring me more pleasure, more fulfillment. This is what I really need. And that is not the case at all. James says this, James 1:16 and 17. Do not be deceived. Anytime you read that in Scripture... You can be certain that is where deception abounds. If it says don't be deceived, it's at that point where deception abounds. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Oh, if Eve would have been confronted with us at time out. God's given us everything that is the best and anything that you would have to offer that he hasn't given us. Would not be good, therefore, why would I trade that which is excellent for something that is inferior? Because of deception. And that's the case for us. Each and every time we enter, or we yield to temptation. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1, 16 and 17. You want to overcome temptation? Then understand that God's not holding anything back from you. Every good and perfect gift he's given to you. He's not holding anything back from you. And when you know that, temptation is not much of a temptation. You won't be deceived. So this goes on to this very day. So what about the effects of the fall? And we already kind of have talked about some of them. But I want to just quickly... As so we begin to wrap this up here, I just want to I want to talk about when they succumbed to the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the tr- eating of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, um, things radically changed. There was a fall. Sin entered in. Death entered in. But there are some other things that took place beyond what which we've already mentioned. But I'm going to just uh, wrap it up here by pointing out the uh, six points that uh, Paul ends, makes in his um, Moody Handbook of Theology. Number one, it said Satan experienced a curse to crawl on his belly. All right, the serpent did, in the dust of the ground. That's one thing that happened. Maybe it's not the biggest of all the things that took place, but it's one thing that took place. Here's something that's quite significant, which we've spent a lot of time talking about as we've gone through the Old Testament. There was in Genesis 3.15, the Lord announced that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. And I look forward to the future day when the seed of the woman would give birth to the Messiah, the Deliverer, Jesus. And of course, Mary is that woman. Jesus is that seed. And in a future day, um, at the end of the millennial reign, Jesus is going to come and he will once for all, deal with Satan, and he will throw him into the lake of fire, never to be dealt with again. So there was a a judgment that was passed upon Satan. Third thing that happened as a result of of the fall is that Genesis 3.16, maybe none of the guys have thought about this one yet. I think some of the ladies have probably thought about it, especially if you've had children, um, there's going to be pain in childbirth. This is something that was a result. Um, Likewise, in... uh, Uh, The fourth point, judgment for his rebellion, that the man would have to toil hard in order to receive the produce of the land and that he would experience death and return to the dust of the earth. Number five, um, which we spend a lot of time reading about in Romans chapter 5, and that is that Adam passed down to all subsequent generations that sin nature and the judgment that's associated with it. And one thing that I think we often forget about, but it certainly is listed, is that God pronounced not only judgment upon man and the woman and the serpent and Satan, but also on the rest of creation. And I would encourage you, if you want to go look, read a little bit on this, you can go to Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, and then Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. And there it talks about how even creation is longing for the restoration that Christ is going to bring when he comes to um, this earth and he sets things straight again. Creation, you might be longing for the coming of the Lord, but creation is groaning. And so, again, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. So, when we talk about man and we think about this world, It really does help us to understand because I think a lot of people, I think even some believers are like, well, I just don't know. Why would God do this? Why would he create, you know, somebody like this? or Why did he create the world like this? And the answer is, he didn't. He didn't create it like that. And so many will say, well, I, I just can't follow a God that would allow these things to take place. Well, let me, let me say, let me speak very kindly to those of you that maybe hold that opinion. You need to get behind Jesus who dislikes it far more than you. You may not like the corruption and the sickness and the disease, but what are you doing about it and what can you do about it? Even if you are an awesome human being and you are doing everything you can with every waking moment and every resource you have you cannot change this broken world. I'm not saying don't don't try, but as you can't, there's one person who can. And his name is Jesus. And he has a greater disdain for this broken, fallen world in the state that it is in than even you. So if you don't like the sickness and the disease and the corruption and the brutality and the racism and whatever other negative thing is going on, get behind Jesus in line because he's number one in protesting against it. Now, if you want to say, well, I won't have anything to do with them, then you fight against the one who's going to make it right. You are found to to be kicking against the one who has the power and the authority to change this all around. And if you say, well, why doesn't he just get with it? The answer is because he's waiting for you. He loves you. And he wants you to come to faith so that you can be a recipient of this recreated, restored um, state of man in this world. And if he would have done it yesterday, you would be left out. So he waits patiently for you who shake your fist at him. He loves you. He is patient and he is kind. So the doctrine of man explains where man has come from and why things are the way they are in the world today. We believe the Bible teaches Emphatically, that God is a creator of, of humanity. In the literal six days, he created all things. Not over long periods of time. Not through atheistic um, evolution um, or theistic evolution. Um, and what we see today is going to one day be restored. So I pray that as you look at this world, as you work through the hard and painful things that touch your life, because let's be real, this fallen world affects all people. It affects even us in this world as we deal with the same things that everybody else in the world deals with in this fallen place. But we know that Jesus is going to make it right. And so this is why we say, Maranatha, Lord, come. And when he comes... He's going to make it right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness and the incredible favor you've shown to us and making us in your image. That you, Lord, made us from the dust of the ground with your own hands and breathed into us life, giving us a physical body, but also giving us Mind and a soul and a spirit, and all the amazing benefits that come from being made in your image. Lord, I pray that we would see that all of mankind, even in their fallen state, even in the rebellious state, are still made in your image. And may we treat one another kindly and justly with love because. Each person reflects and has been created in your image. So, Lord, we pray that we've got the answers. You have given them to us in your word for the things that plague our generation. Lord, help us to get back to just what the Bible has to say. And trying to keep us from trying to be so smart and outthinking thinking what has clearly been written in your word. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who maybe are feeling the impacts, although redeemed, and have the hope of a restoration. Lord, they still are living in this fallen world and they're feeling the impacts, maybe in their own body, maybe within their family, maybe in some other way, Lord. I pray that you will come and you'll minister to them and you will give them grace and remind them that this is not what you want either. That's why you came back to this place. This is why you came to this earth, was to turn it around. Thank you, Lord, that you're redeeming us, that you're restoring. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.